everyone, I'm Chase Collette, and this is The Entrepreneurial Youth, the show where I talk to entrepreneurs, business people, young innovators, side hustlers, and everyone in between about their successes, stories, strategies, and how you can follow in their footsteps. To understand, you know, how to communicate with people. And of course, it's, it's a big part of being a journalist is being able to communicate with people on whatever level. And especially, you know, not being intimidated as well. If you're interviewing somebody like a president or a CEO of a corporation, you have to be able to stand on your own two feet and, and obviously deal with that situation and not be intimidated by the people that you're actually interviewing. Welcome, everyone, to this week's episode of The Entrepreneurial Youth. This episode is a bit special because this episode was specifically requested by one of my listeners. I had a request to do an episode on the media industry and how someone could get into the media industry in some capacity. And so I followed through for you guys. Today's guest is Brian Scott Smith, and he is a veteran media broadcaster. He's been in the industry for over 20 years and has seen every aspect of the changing industry as the digital age steamrolled its way across the world. Brian Spath is a bit different from the traditional journalist. Not only was he born in Great Britain, but he's also a freelance writer, something that we'll talk about a bit later in the show. He also hosts the Connecticut This Week podcast, a news and reporting podcast aired across five radio stations in Connecticut. Before I talk to Brian about his journey through the media industry, though, I first wanted to get an idea of what his childhood was like. So more than anything, Brian, I want to I want to start from the beginning of your life. I want to know what you did in your childhood that sets you up for the success that you had today. Oh, wow. That's taken me back a few years. So I was a little bit of a geeky nerd when I was younger sort of thing. I was into all sorts of, you know, science and, and technology. And I remember when I was at school and to bear in mind that when I was at school, computers were just coming into schools so i'm not going to give age away but you can work it out if you math that was quite a few uh, number of years ago so you know when all this technology came in it was just absolutely fascinating for you know a young lad to be able to get not having that interest so as i continued to to grow up and I got, you know, computer at home and, uh, you know, then moved through school and obviously all of that technology continued. Um, it just absolutely fascinated me. I've always been somebody that really does. Uh, when I say love education, I like educating myself. I mean, you know, sometimes educational right. institutions aren't always as, as fascinating or as interesting as we would hope they would be. But my interest in educating myself, that's always been there so uh, you know it was interesting that then when I sort of like finally left school I didn't actually go into the media world straight away I, I in fact went into the insurance world which again is not an industry which is known for being the most glamorous I mean there's a lot of <laughs> things that have to be done which are very tedious they're monotonous they're repetitive sort of thing but right. it set me up in a very good way to step into the world of journalism because I ended up doing um, claims investigation so I worked in a sort of a corporate office and I dealt with not your average sort of like home or auto claims I was dealing with sort of like large corporate organizations where maybe it was um, you know an employee had an accident or, or whatever 
And so the connection with the journalism there was that, you know, where I had to go out and investigate this, you know, you're asking a lot of questions of people and you're writing and you had to format things in a particular way because you're report writing. And then ultimately that led me to consider a job actually within the insurance industry of becoming a public affairs or public relations officer for the insurance company I was working for. The job came up. And I decided I wanted to have a go at that. So it's had actually set me up very nicely for that. And then I took that job. And what happens with some of these large organizations, again, doesn't matter where they are in the world, often you get the opportunity to improve yourself and go on, uh, you know, training courses or whatever. And uh, I decided to take journalism because I was dealing with journalists and the media. And I thought, well, what better way of understanding what they need uh, than if I, you know, take a course in journalism, get a qualification, and hopefully that'll make me a better public relations person. And so that's what I did. But what happened was I enjoyed the journalism so much after I got qualified, I decided, right, that's what I'm going to do. So I gave up the nice, safe job at the insurance company and the monthly pay package and all the benefits that came with it and decided to turn freelance and here I am uh, 20 years later, still freelancing and enjoying it and working, you know, uh, for many different organizations in different parts of the world sometimes and meeting incredible people. No, that's that's really, really awesome. Um, and that insurance, that was when you were still back in uh, Great Britain, right? Yes, it was. Yeah. Although it's a big international insurance company, it's called Zurich Insurance and they're based in Switzerland, but uh, they're actually here in the US as well. But no, you're absolutely right. When I was working for them, I was still in the in the UK. Oh, that's really cool. So, I don't know if I missed this, but did you you went to, you went to high school or uh, the British the British education system is a bit different than the American one. Um, it is a little bit, yeah. It is a little bit. So, yeah, I went to I went to high school, and but I didn't um, carry on uh, to to college or university. I got to a point where, um, like I said. I like to educate myself, but I'd, I didn't want to carry on into further education. So that's why I went into a job. So I was actually working from about the age of um, 18 and, right. you know, got a lot of on the job training. And, you know, that set me up very nicely. I mean, you know, here I am many years later and it certainly wasn't detrimental to me. Not that I'm advocating that people shouldn't obviously, you know, carry on to further education if that's something that interests them, because, Right. Clearly, there are benefits to having, uh, you know, further education, either at a, a college or community college or, or university. And certainly I still had to go to college to get my journalism qualification. I mean, that's not something that you can necessarily get. I mean, so, uh, yeah, I did still have some college time, although it was a lot shorter because I, you know, took a much more sort of like abridged course to get that qualification. Right. And so that 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 journal, that journalism qualification, was that how long after you graduated high school did you go back to college to get that? Oh, gosh, it was many years. I mean, I probably didn't get my journalism qualification until I was in my late 20s. Oh, so it was it was probably like 10, 10 or so years later. Yeah. Yeah. It would be probably about that sort of time. Yeah. Because I was in the world of work for quite a while. And, you know, I suppose like many of us, we try to work out what it is that we want to do with our lives and of course we're always being asked aren't we you know well, what do you want to do and what you're going to do in the next five years and I think sometimes it's it's difficult to decide what you want to do and certainly nowadays I mean there's just so much more variety as well and uh, 
yeah, so I you know, took that route of, of work. And like I said, I think it set me up very well because certainly the structure of working in an insurance company and the way that you had to work back then and the type of work I was doing aligned itself very well to, you know, what it is that a journalist has to do. Of course, yeah, because you were you were working in that um, claims reporting. So you had, you really were set up to go into the journalism industry when you eventually went back 10 years later. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. Because one of the other things, apart from just all the, the formalities of, of the work, it was very much a people orientated job, which, of course, is what a journalist is. You know, you're you're out there speaking to people now that might be, uh, you know, either remotely, depending on where that person is, or you know, most of the time you hope it's going to be face to face. So, yeah, you know, the insurance industry certainly did set me up well to understand, you know, how to communicate with people. And of course, it's, it's a big part of being a journalist is being able to communicate with people on whatever level and especially, you know, not being intimidated as well. If you're interviewing somebody like a president or a CEO of a corporation, you have to be able to stand on your own two feet and, and obviously deal with that situation and not be intimidated by the people that you're actually interviewing. Of course. Um, and so, you went. You eventually went back to school to get your journalism qualification, and you said that you turned. You you became a freelancer, right? Yes, I did. Yeah, so that's uh, that was an interesting thing because I just I woke up one day and decided that's what I wanted to do, and I didn't actually have any real plan. Um, mm-hmm. So the follies, the follies of youth, as they say, but uh, it all worked out well because at the end of the day, if the, if you want something enough, you know, you'll make it happen. And I was very fortunate that I had built up some contacts, as it were, and I lived in a city which had um, sort of like a lot of media um, in the city as well. So, of course, that always helps if you do have those those outlets available to you. And uh, I just went out and you know started to build up a portfolio, started doing the freelance work. And then, you know, just went from job to job, but uh, making sure that I didn't just rely on one, you know, client or one organization, because I think that's always can or that can be problematical because it's very easy to you know get a contract maybe with a large organization but then of course you never know when they may have uh, a situation where they may start to lay off workers and of course the people that always get laid off the first are the ones that you know are on contract or freelance because they're the easiest ones to you know to release from an organization so you do have to be a little bit careful and a bit mindful of of that work um that type of work that you you want to take on because it can be a little bit unstable um that said the world of course now is changing so much now that we see a lot of organizations going down that route where they're either having people on contract or temporary or part-time or freelance work because you know their own internal costs are so exorbitant it's really one of the only ways that they can make sure that they stay in business and that's not even to do with just the pandemic i mean the pandemic clearly isn't helping but you know healthcare costs and all the other costs because of course any organization one of their most expensive assets is their employees of course yeah um no because I read, I, I don't remember what report it was, but I read a report a while back that said that for most companies, about 50% of all of their costs come from paying their employees, especially, yeah, especially big, big companies like in, like in restaurant chains and whatnot. That's a big expense. Yeah. And the thing is with the media industry as well as, I mean, years ago, I mean, it was absolutely falling over itself with money. And to a certain degree, I mean, you know, parts of the industry still are very affluent, but 
what happens now with a lot of these media organizations and it's generally more the sort of like the regional ones uh, not maybe necess- necessarily the national um, uh, media outlets but certainly more of the the local ones in your state is they don't have that sort of money to spend as much anymore so what happens is you'll see so like anchors or talent or reporters either retire or they'll go elsewhere. And then of course they'll bring in replacements, but those replacements get brought in at a far lower so like salary than, you know, the, the previous people that were there. So it is something that people do have to bear in mind with the media industry is as it continues to work out how it's going to evolve the pay is one of those things that isn't as, uh, as great as it used to be. So don't think you're necessarily going to become rich off of working in the media industry unless maybe you become the next Oprah Winfrey or, you know, um, Anderson Cooper <laughs> and, you, you you know, you make it nationally because locally the money, it, you know, it's there. But as I say, it's, it's not going to turn you necessarily into a millionaire. Right. Um, so and out of curiosity, because you said that you became a freelancer versus going to work in a big corporation, why was it that you decided to become a freelancer versus taking maybe the stability of joining, say, NPR or any of CNN or any of those other big news networks? It's because I'd been working, you know, for an organization for, as you say, about 10 or so years before I went into journalism. But I just had enough just as, you know, when I got you know, to the age of 18, it was like, yeah, I don't want to do college and I don't want to do university. I think it's just a me thing. I just get to a point where it's like, yeah, I've done that. So now I want to try something different. And that's why I didn't want to be sort of like working for an organization doing the nine to five or, you know, the eight or whatever it was uh, and being like constrained by the fact that, yeah, I was another employee. Um, so I just wanted to, to try something different, see how it worked. I mean, the idea, there was no actual plan. I mean, it's not like I had a five year plan and, you know, it was a case of if after five years it doesn't work, I'll do this. I just wanted to try it and see where I went and through hard work, perseverance and thankfully the work being out there and finding that work, I've managed to keep it going for all of these years. And, and that's really awesome. So, and I do, I do want to throw in my opinion here. And it seems like that a lot of people don't have that five-year plan. You know what I mean? It seems like for a lot of people, it's more, a, a lot of the decisions come kind of off the cuff. Yeah. And I think that probably is the reality of life, to be honest with you. I mean, when we say that we've got a five year plan, nobody knows what is going to happen. I mean, the world is quite a challenging place at the best of times. And then, you know, when something wild like a pandemic happens, clearly that throws everything out the window for for everyone. I, I honestly think that it's best to just think, you know, a few years ahead. I don't, I honestly think we live in a world where saying, you know, I've got a five-year plan. It's never going to happen because give it a couple of years and, and things would have changed. And part of, I think, the reason that is, is because, you know, technological advancement, the way that we do work and we all work differently. And of course, you know, with me being a freelancer, I don't go into an office. I mean, even before such things as like the COVID pandemic, I was working from home anyway, because a lot of freelancers do work from their home, their home office. Um, So, you know, the the world is changing so much and the world of work is changing so much as well. I think it's it's interesting if anyone does actually have a real five-year plan um, because it it is going to change. 
So before we move on in the podcast, I would like to throw in my own thoughts on the five-year plan. I think Brian is right in saying that most people won't have a five-year plan, but I do think that you should still have goals. One of the most important pieces of success are having goals that you can chase after and strive to achieve. I personally have goals for this month, for the next three months, and for the next year. I have a very vague idea of where I want to be in five years, but I don't know exactly where I will be. That idea also actually applies the more, more the younger you are. Because when we're young, we don't know where our lives will lead. I can assure you I'm in a different spot now than my 11-year-old self thought I would be. I digress, but in this next section, I wanted to ask Brian what inspired him to move to the U.S. and start his new career. We also talked about how to get started in an industry where you don't have a ton of skills and how a unique perspective is often exactly what a company is looking for. love my country and I love the United Kingdom and I still have friends and family there and I try to go back there every year but again going back to what I've already said in this you know this conversation that we're having where you know I'll get to a point in my life where I want to try something different I'd got to that point and I had some very good American friends who live on the west coast and I said to them you know I want to try this and they said well why not and again the world was a very different place then. Some of these things were easier to do than they are these days. And I took the opportunity, made the inquiries, you know, got the required visas that I would need to obviously work legally in the US and just took it from there. And again, had some help from people that I'd met uh, and who lived here. So they were able to give me the guidance, uh, the absolute necessary guidance that I needed to make sure that I was doing everything correctly. Because clearly, you know, if you move from one country to another, that's one thing. But if you're going to work in another country, there's often a lot of hoops that you have to jump through to make sure that you're doing it correctly. And, uh, and as I say, that it's all legal, because otherwise, you're going to find yourself in some big trouble very, very quickly. And certainly if you're going to try and work for organizations like, you know, PBS or NPR, they're certainly going to want to know that you're not, um, you know, about to be sort of ushered out of the country because obviously, you know, your visa isn't uh, correct, et cetera. So that's, right. that's how that happened. And also because I'd been coming to the US as well on and off for, um, for holidays, for vacations over a number of years. And, just as I say, fell in love with the country and still have a love affair with the US. And so therefore it was a case of, well, why not? You know, nobody in my family had ever done it. And I thought, well, let's, let's try it again. You know, let's see what happens. There was no five-year plan again. It was a case of uh, the, the work visas had a certain duration on them. I thought, well, let's see the work visa is valid for this amount of time. And if it works at the end of that work visa, I can apply for another one. If it doesn't, then, you know, at least I can say I tried. Of course. And I mean, there was in the end, there was no risk for you doing that. So honestly, it was a very intelligent decision. Obviously, it's led to, to a payout in, in all, all different areas of your life. Absolutely. And again, it's, it is about, you know, it just goes back to what it is that you want and working for it. And sometimes you do have to put in that extra bit of effort to make sure that you get what you want um, and work hard. And hopefully the things that, uh, you know, you aspire to, you can actually uh, you know, make happen. And I've been very, very fortunate that, you know, through my hard work, but also through the organizations and the people that I've worked for, by proving yourself, 
that's that's what's worked out. I mean, a good thing about coming to the US as well is that my unique selling point was the fact that I was British. I didn't sound like anybody here. I had a different perspective on things as well. So that was refreshing for some of the media outlets because, you know, often that's what they're looking for. It's like, well, how can we do something different? How can we look at something differently? And that's not just the media. I mean, it's companies as well. It's they're, they're often looking to see, uh, you know, is this the best way that we should be doing something or are there other ways that we can do it? And when you do have people come in from the outside, doesn't necessarily have to be from another country, but, you know, maybe another industry sector um, or different age group, et cetera. You know, we all come with our skills and our way of looking at things. And it's always very different. And that's a great thing is when you can bring that sort of talent in and people can be heard as well. It's not just a case of bringing them in. They have to be able to be heard and, and contribute. And if they're allowed to do that, then great things can happen. Right. So I, I kind of want to transition into talking about the media industry, it, like moving into the future. So because mm-hmm. obviously the media industry has changed a lot in the last 10 years. And actually, can we can we touch on that very quickly? Like, how has the media industry changed in the last 10 years and where do you see it heading into the future? Oh, absolutely. I mean, of course, once the internet really started to take hold, and of course, for the younger generation listening to this, it's like, well, the internet's always been there. And of course, it has for for them. But for people like me, I mean, the internet suddenly appeared. It really did change things. I mean, just to give a, a really funny example with regards to a journalism job, before the internet was around, to make inquiries about things, you couldn't obviously just go onto a computer and Google something or whatever. I mean, right. or find if you needed to find a guest for something, you had to pick up a an old fashioned telephone directory or telephone book, which, of course, I don't even think they exist anymore either. Um, and you had to do it was all very manual. I mean, it was a very different case. And and when you, you know, you typed on typewriters, you didn't have word processors and computers and all that sort of thing. So the technology has changed considerably. And of course, invariably, that changes many industries, including the media industry. And what right. it meant is that the media industry has become faster and faster at the way that it delivers things. That doesn't always, of course, necessarily translate into a good thing because speed in itself might be um, beneficial when you're trying to break a story. But if you get all of the facts wrong and you break that story, then, of course, as a media organization, you know, it's a complete death now because then people are saying, well, how can we trust you? You got all of this information wrong because you rushed to get that story out. So that's where the, the media industry has sort of found itself is there's the push for ratings and whether that's a newspaper or whether it's television or radio or online services is everyone is trying to be the first to get that information out there but they're not always getting all of that information right or if they are they're they're changing it on the go and i don't think that necessarily always sits well with not only the journalists but in particular the audience that's the most important thing because if an audience can't trust a media outlet they're going to give it up very quickly right and obviously we, we've seen that massive problem appear in the last four or five years where there's been there's been large questions surrounding media outlets and the biases around them. Um, and Absolutely, that has damaged the media industry irreparably. Yeah, I mean, thoughts. I think yeah, I mean, I try to have a look at the Pew Research uh, on the media. They tend to do something about every year, and they do a very good survey. And they're not the only ones, but Pew is obviously a very trusted source when they do these types of surveys. And 
Americans' attitudes towards, you know, media, be it, you know, right wing, left wing, liberal, whatever, is constantly shifting. And some of those figures are quite surprising sometimes. And even when you look at the names that are associated to the figures, I've even like taken a sharp intake of breath sometimes and thought, wow, you know, that's a real low figure of acceptance from the audience, you know, with regards to trust. And that is a real big thing. If you don't trust the media, uh, you know, you just as well pack up shop and, and forget it. Right. And so obviously there's a little bit of a side tangent, but I'd love to hear how you think that the media could go about gaining back public trust because that's a big topic in the industry at the moment. I think one of the big issues that the media has to really do is to look at itself hard. It needs to have a good, hard look at itself and understand that they, you know, it is a very powerful industry. Right. They can get information out there quickly, and that can be either like social media, traditional media, um, you know, whatever, television, radio, newspapers. They can all get that information out there. I think they need to ask themselves the question, do we need to be flooding the people with this all the time as quickly as we do? And I think the answer for me personally is no, you don't need to do it. Because even as a journalist, I often, you know, I might catch something on television every now and again, or I'll see something online. And I even, you know, shrink inside myself and think, why did they do that sort of thing? It's sort of, it's it's turned from information to infotainment almost um, because they're not allowing you know the full check to to happen with regards to you know whatever the story is and also the other thing that they're doing which they need to stop doing is this constant use of the phrase breaking news I mean you see it all the time Mm -hmm. yet breaking news to me is it's happening you know right now I mean if you know maybe a news program goes on air and something is happening and they're reporting it as it's as it is actually happening that's breaking news but when something has happened earlier in the day and you see something you know you see a news outlet and they're still calling it breaking news just because they want to grab the attention of the audience that's when the trust starts to dissolve because of course Mm -hmm. all they're doing they're just doing it to grab somebody's attention uh, because of this desire to you know be at the front or you know to to get their audience and and there's too much money involved as well here in in the american marketplace as in so true. sponsors and all that sort of stuff but unfortunately that's that's the way it's been i don't know what the answer is because you know i come from a country where uh, the bbc wasn't funded by advertising um or sponsors it was advertised it was um it was um, paid for by so like a tax which was collected from really the people of the United Kingdom. And then, you know, that money was was given to the BBC. So it was a very different way of uh, financially supporting a media organisation. But of course, here in the US, it's, it's very much been about, you know, corporate sponsorship and money from advertising. And although they should never interfere with the editorial output of especially the news part of, of an industry, they those advertisers are very powerful as well and the moment that they sniff something that they don't like and start to pull out of course the knee-jerk reaction by the media is okay well we'll we'll change it we'll do this we'll do that to keep you happy to placate you and of course you know we're talking millions and billions of dollars here so of course they're going to do that so that's the problem i think we have is the money side of it and as i say in this 
this desire to constantly be you know the first to get this information out there but they're not always doing that in in a particularly uh, mindful way one of the things that brian mentioned in the last talk was how working at smaller companies was often better for a person who's starting in the media industry that's actually true of any industry and i would advocate for working in smaller companies like Brian said, smaller companies are often more fluid and you have the opportunity to work in, in more jobs and learn more skills and really gain a higher and more intimate connection with the people in that company. So if you have the opportunity, look for smaller companies that are willing to take a risk on you and willing to train you. In the next part of our talk, I asked Brian how someone like me could get into the industry and the step-by-step -step instructions to starting a career in journalism? Well, one of the most important things I think still is to get your qualification in journalism. And, you know, whether that's broadcast journalism or print journalism, it, it is important because you need to understand that there is a standard. If you're going to be writing as a professional, and, and when I say writing as a professional, I mean a journalist, not a writer, because to me, those are two very different things. A writer writes, uh, you know, they can still write pieces which can have a journalistic sort of like bent to them, but a writer won't necessarily adhere to all of the rules of journalism. I mean, you do have to be careful as a journalist if you're writing about something, you know, that you're not maligning somebody, that you're not causing, um, you know, say you're a crime reporter, that you're not revealing information that you shouldn't actually reveal, which may right. sound odd, but, you know, there's certain circumstances where as a journalist, you understand that you cannot, you know, identify something because the law says you cannot do that. You know, there are certain rules and regulations which help to define, um, you know, good journalism, good media. And if you stick to those, um, obviously that's important, but you need to understand those. Certainly if you're going to work for something like the Associated Press, which is one of the largest like news outlets in the world, or Reuters, um, they have standards and you have to know what those standards are because if you don't write to those standards or you don't adhere to those standards, you're not going to last their five minutes. So getting a journalism qualification, certainly from you know a college or a university, that is absolutely essential because that's going to give you the building blocks for you to then decide, right, I've got that qualification. What do I want to do? Do I want to be a sports journalist? Do I, do I like tech? Do I like finance or do I like you know another form of business do I want to be a general news journalist or, and even though people keep going on about you know newspapers are disappearing they will the, the physical thing will ultimately disappear but you know there's still going to be an online version of it so you can still be a print journalist but you're going to have to learn a few more skills as well because print journalists now have to be able to take video and you know do audio as well so that's not necessarily a bad thing because that makes the job a little bit more interesting as well and it gives you those skills to you know maybe later in your life when you've decided I've had enough of maybe that particular outlet I've learned these skills it should make it easier for you to actually trans um, uh, transit over to a, another form of the media industry because you will have those those essential skills so getting the qualification, absolutely essential. And then look at, you know, where you are. Are you fortunate that you live maybe in a city or a location where there's a lot of media? Uh, if you do, then there's going to be plenty of jobs going because there always are, because the industry is, is quite fluid. People move around a fair amount within the media industry. But that also means there's going to be a lot of competition. So you, you have to 
one, understand there is going to be the competition. And do you want to be somebody like me, a freelancer? Do you want to work contract or do you want to um, basically, you know, be a full time person? So, you know, those those things that you can think about as well. And as I say, contract work or being a freelancer has certainly become more and more of a thing now. And basically, it's going to be a, it's like a case of it's, it's going to be constantly changing, you know, as as the, the media industry evolves, as you evolve, you're going to decide, OK, that's not a space I want to work in anymore. Or, you know, this has come up. I want to go in this direction instead. So, yeah, qualification. Start looking at what is actually out there. Start building your portfolio. Try not to do work for nothing. I mean, there's a lot of these, you know, internships and interning is a great thing to do because it gets you inside an organization and allows you to find out how they work. And dependent on where you live, I think, you know, the local laws, et cetera, some of them do allow organizations to get away with not paying you or not paying you much. And then other states is a little bit different. So, you know, try not to give your work away for free, because even though you're just starting off in this industry, you've still got a lot to give. So don't give it away for free unless you absolutely have to, you know, get paid, get the recognition for the work and the professionalism and the experience that you actually bring to something. And as we've said, there's no such thing as a five year plan. But just look at what is happening, you know, keep an eye on the industry, look at things that maybe you want to move into and give yourself a bit of time to move into it. Because as much as I said, the industry is fluid, which it is moving into something too fast, whether it's the, you know, the media industry or another job may not be beneficial to you because you do need a little bit of experience still in most of the things that we do by way of work that's going to help you. You know, if you're not a particularly good people person, it's no good suddenly thinking you're going to be the world's best broadcast journalist, because if you can't speak to somebody or communicate, well, how are you going to do that job? So as I say, think about what it is that you want to do. Take your time over it as well. And, and just keep an eye, as I say, keep an eye on the industry because it is, it is going to keep changing and you're going to need to change with it. You know, as a freelancer, I have to keep changing with the industry. You know, I have to learn new things and I enjoy doing that. So that goes back to me saying about you know, me educating myself. I love doing audio editing and using all the, the latest like tools. So learn things like that. And if you've got a passion for something like that, that's also helpful as well. Of course. Right. And so at, at the beginning, at the beginning, right, when people are just just out of college, just getting into this industry, how do they start building that portfolio that allows them to get hired into companies? Because I know one of the biggest problems that people run into is they have no work to present. Like you said, when you started as a journalist, you didn't have any work to present to like a BBC. Mm. How do you start building that portfolio and getting that experience so that you can become a successful journalist? As weird as it sounds, you know, just writing, um, a, you know, if you've got a blog, doing something as simple as, as, as a blog and actually writing some things and doing interviews with people and either just doing the writing or adding video to it. If you have yourself an online presence somewhere, it could even just be a Facebook page or something. I mean, just have a you need a digital footprint clearly because we live in this digital world because people need to be able to see something what you might be able to do as well is you might be fortunate that you know parents might work for organizations that want some 
work done or something, some journalistic style work or whatever, you might be able to get a foot in there and do a little bit of work, maybe get paid and start to build your portfolio there. There's many ways that you can do it. It's, it's really dependent on how far you're prepared to push yourself, you know, to create those pieces of work. Even to like contacting your local newspaper. And I said, you know, obviously not too long ago, you know, try not to give it away for free. You might be able to contact them and say, hey, you know, I'm just starting off. And, you know, do you do you take any work in um, from the outside? And if so, you know, do you do you pay for it or not? They might pay you something for it, a small amount of money. And if they do, that's great. If they don't think about, well, if I actually do write that, it's a well regarded media outlet, you know, where I live. I'll, I'll just do it anyway. So as I say, you, you have to, so like, it's going to be different for everybody at the end of the day. But also, right. you know, when you take your qualification, you're going to be building up a little bit of a portfolio as well, because that's part of, generally, that's part of most courses. I mean, I remember when I took my qualification is you have to, to write stuff. And we still had to go out and, and act like real journalists, even though we weren't qualified. I had to contact, you know, I had to do a sports piece and I had to do a business piece. So we would contact organizations still and say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm at this particular, you know, university, college, et cetera, and I'm doing this course and I've, I have to do a piece. And you'll find that most people are actually quite good at uh, saying to you, yeah, okay, you can come and talk to us or, you know, I'll do an interview. So again, you're not getting paid for that, but it's part and parcel of your training anyway. So, you know, you will be building a bit of a portfolio as your training and you should certainly be building a portfolio as your training. And that all counts at the end of the day. So, you know, you can certainly use some of that. It may not necessarily get published, but it's certainly still, you know, it will have been marked by your tutors. It's still good quality stuff that you can still use as uh, examples of the type of work that you're capable of. Of course. Right. And, Oh, sorry. Um, on that topic. So what do you think like the hardest part for a young person like me getting into the media industry is? Um, it's having a unique selling point because everybody now wants to be in the media because it's so easy and accessible to do it. We've got our cell phones, we've got social media, you know, there's influences, there's all sorts of things. So the ability to, you know, be so like a public um, uh, let me rephrase it, the ability to put yourself out there and become known or start a following is so much easier than it used to be because of the, the, the technology that we have. So it's finding a voice, it's finding a different way to do something. You know, you have to rise above the noise. Don't follow the crowd and just do something. If you see that this an influencer doing something and you think, oh, that's great. I'm going to do exactly the same thing. It's probably not going to work for you because there's only so many people that are going to watch that. And if you're doing nothing really particularly different, why are they going to watch you? So it is tough because there's a lot, it's such a saturated market, but it doesn't mean that there isn't uh, possibilities for people to get in there. What you probably need to do is to look at some of the areas which traditionally people shy away from because they think it's either too hard or it's not something that they want to get involved in. I mean, things like um, reporting, court reporting and, and, and legal, you know, stories about uh, legal matters. 
aren't as heavily populated uh, by way of, of journalists. I mean, there's still plenty of them out there, but right. you'll, you'll tend to find people gravitate towards, oh, I want to be an entertainment journalist. I want to write about, you know, this celebrity and that celebrity. And that's absolutely fine because we need those as well. But that's going to be the ones which are going to be really, really saturated. So if you right. think you're going to be the next great sort of like entertainment journalist, best of luck, because unless you have a real interesting unique selling point or a way of doing it the chances are you're just going to be part of that you know throng of entertainment journalists and you'll probably never rise above the rest of the noise so think about as i say starting off in 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 another area which isn't quite so competitive but maybe you you've got um as i say you've got a passion for it or you've got an interest in there because that will certainly help you and also believing as i say if you have got a passion for something, I mean, that always helps as well. Uh, and there's so much niche stuff out there, which, again, I think over time, we're going to see that sort of, uh, you know, shrink a bit. But whilst it's the, you know, the bubble is still growing, if you can like jump on that and, and suddenly like, yep, yeah, that's a real good thing that you do there, that's particular subject people are really into. You could just be, you could just be lucky as well. Sometimes, People just get lucky. Um, others have to work at it. Who, you know, nobody really knows how it's right. going to work out. I mean, you know, it's like when viral videos, who really knows why a video sometimes goes viral? Sometimes you right. can look at it and think, well, you know, I sort of know why I think that went viral. But then other times you can look at a viral video and think, I've got no idea why people are so interested <laughs> in that because it's just so obscure and, and unusual. Right. And, and it's the same really with the media industry. It's like you either strike it lucky or you'll just be part of the media land. So Brian just mentioned the idea that your connections in an industry could be invaluable in providing you a work opportunity. If you want to build your connections, here's some apl applicable advice incoming. I would start by networking with people on LinkedIn. If you don't know what LinkedIn is, it's essentially Instagram for business people. People on LinkedIn are sometimes hard to reach, but they're often really friendly and happy to help you. Tell them about your mission and your purpose and use the fact that you're young and want to learn. In the first episode of this podcast, me and Caleb Gilliams talked about the student card and how being young is often your greatest advantage when it comes to meeting other business professionals. Another uh, networking technique that I absolutely love is once you get in with one person, like once I started talking to Caleb, ask them for other people that they think might be able to help you. That's what I do off the scenes with every single one of these podcasts. I ask my guests, is there anyone else that you think might be a great fit for this show? And so by meeting one person, I can potentially meet three more. And from each of these three people, I can meet another three. And it's an exponential growth of my network. That's another. So once you guys are in with one person, start asking them about their friends and colleagues that you think that they think you could learn from as well. So in the coming section, I talked to Brian about people's unique selling points and how you can find your own selling point. Skype. Right. So if you had to, so if you were talking to a young, or young journalist who's trying to get in the industry, like me, what would you, what would you tell them should be their unique selling point? Like what, what is your unique selling point? What would you say is my unique selling point, et cetera? My unique selling point is the fact that I don't sound like an American because I'm not. And therefore I've also got a different outlook on things as well. You know, I come from a country which has got a different uh, set of 
you know, not rules and regulations, although they do. But I mean, you know, I come from a country where we've got maybe different opinions and we look at things in a different way, et cetera, et cetera. I think, you know, what you need to do is you need to look at yourself um, and say, what is it that has listen to what people have said to you, you know, have people said to you in the past, oh, you've got a real, you know, niche for this, or you've got a real knack for doing that. You need to listen to people and, and take on board, you know, that advice that you get. It might be from your parents, it might be from, from friends or whatever. Or, as I say, do a deep dive into things that interest you and, and ways that you can maybe do it differently so that people are going to go, oh, yeah, that's, that's really interesting how they've approached that. So you're going to have to do a little bit of homework because there aren't really, I, I struggle with this question because it is really, it is different for every single one of us. Right. So even yeah. to say to you, Chase, you should do this, this, and this, it's going to be different for the next person because, of you know, course. what works for Chase isn't going to work for, you know, Doris or, you know, or Ben or whoever, um, because you're all so very different. Also, the other thing to bear in mind is, you know, where you come from as well, your own background. I mean, we all keep hearing about privilege and white privilege and all that sort of stuff. And yeah, if depending on the color of your skin, sometimes, you know, it, that gets you an advantage unfairly as well sometimes. So those are things that, you know, you have to take into consideration or you may have to battle with, or they may be challenges as well in your life. So there's, there's all these things that you have to bear in mind that are a part and parcel of not just a job in the media, but life in general. Right. One of the best things about people is how diverse we are. Like Brian said, everyone has their own selling point and that's the key to success in any industry. Every person has some unique skill to them and a passion that they can apply to their work. One of my friends who will never listen to this podcast <laughs> loves cars and racing. He races go-karts himself and has a passion for the sport. That's something that he can leverage when he goes to get a job as an engineer in the future. He has so much more experience than someone who's just doing things in college. And so we'll call him Rob. If you ever listen to this... Thanks, because you finally got around to listening, and you're the best. So honestly, guys, just try and find your own unique selling point and develop that within yourself. With our time drawing to a close, I wanted to ask Brian his two pieces of advice for a young and aspiring journalist. So I know we're running low on time here, and I know, I, I know you're a busy guy, and I don't want to you know, step on your toes and take up too much of your time. So I, I do have one final question for you, Brian, and I'm going to change it up a little bit because usually I use the, the word entrepreneur. But in this case, I'm going to ask you, if you were to give a young aspiring journalist two pieces of advice, what would they be? My two pieces of advice to a young and aspiring journalist would be work hard and get qualified of course right and obviously work hard we you you mean that we just you just have to throw yourself into everything that you do because it's really passion that's going to let you break through an industry right yeah absolutely yeah if you want to and that i think personally it works for anything in life if you want something enough 
you'll work for it. And if you've got the passion, then you'll get it. And if you really, truly want to be a journalist, once you've got that qualification, uh, if you've got that spark there, it's not going to guarantee, like I said, that you're going to be the next, you know, Anderson Cooper, you know, earning millions, although that could happen. And if it does, best of luck to you and, and take that bull by the horns and absolutely run with it. But you can still have a very comfortable life as a journalist doing great work, getting paid for it. And the most important thing is building the trust with the audience, which is ultimately always your goal. Well, everyone, that was Brian Scott Smith. I had an awesome time recording this episode, and I hope that you had a fun time listening. I honestly think that the theme of this episode is taking risks and knowing what makes you unique. When it comes to any industry, you really just need to be willing to grind for what you want. I recently started my Instagram page for this podcast, and you can find it at The Entrepreneurial Youth. I'll link it in the description of this episode, but if anyone wants to reach out through that platform, I'll respond to any DMs that I get. I don't want to take up too much of your time, so thank you so much for listening today, and I hope you learned something. It would help me immeasurably if you could think about rating and reviewing the show. On iTunes, you can just scroll down and press the five-star review, and on Spotify, you have to click the follow button. Remember, guys, consistency creates miracles. I'll see you next Monday.